break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here on The Punch Out, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, as always, here on 2-1-2021, February 1st. Happy Black History Month to everyone. Happy Monday to everyone. Happy to be back with you. Hopefully, things are going well for you. And if not, hopefully, we can improve your day a little bit here with The Punch Out and all the critical news that you need for 2-1-2021. And of course, we're going to be talking about many things, but there's a coup going on in Myanmar you may have seen. We'll talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about large protests that really swept the whole country of France over the course of this weekend on Saturday in relationship to a new pro-police bill that could be voted on relatively soon there. But before we get to either of those stories, we talk about how the Biden administration, it seems, is continuing the just (laughs) seemingly never-ending war in Afghanistan. Well, one thing that uh, isn't fundamentally changing, to use Biden's words there as the new administration turns over, is the U.S. war and occupation in Afghanistan that's been rolling for nearly 20 years. Recent comments from both the Biden administration and NATO command, however, reveal that the end of the war, which was supposed to come in May, has been postponed. Over the weekend, senior NATO officials told Reuters that there would be no end to the U.S.-led NATO occupation in May, and that, in fact, They had no idea when a complete drawdown will happen. And this comes after the Biden administration stated that they are putting the peace deal struck between Trump uh, and the Taliban under review. Now, of course, this was the deal that said the war would end by May, but they placed this deal under review, they say, for an unknown amount of time. And they responded to Reuters over the weekend, asking them uh, in regards for the story, what they thought about what NATO was saying here, that they were for ending the war, but that's it, that there is no timetable. It's just some unknown time based on vague, more or less unknown conditions. I mean, they're generally known, but basically saying we'll end it sometime sometime in the future of humanity, I guess. That's the and the, the upshot of what they answered to Reuters there. Specifically, the coalition forces, though, are saying that there are things that the Taliban is not doing. Most importantly, they're saying that they are failing to live up to these vague security assurances that were a part of the original deal saying that recent Taliban operations that have targeted critical infrastructure were part of a broader pattern of failing to stop attacks against the forces affiliated with the so-called Afghan government. And U.S. and NATO governments often claim as well that they still lack assurances or the proper assurances that the Taliban will not allow ISIS or al-Qaeda to openly operate, that is, in their territory, in Afghanistan, that is, if they were to leave. So there's a lot here, but... What's most important is that all of this is essentially just a shell game to keep the war going. Ultimately, what's happening here is that there's significant concern in the U.S. security establishment writ large about relinquishing a major military presence in a geostrategically important country. Afghanistan, it's right there in the middle of Russia. 
uh, China, Iran, Pakistan, India, you you can you get the point here. Nevertheless, they don't want to end it. It's a geostrategically important uh, country. In addition to that, if they leave, it would be a huge loss of face for U.S. imperialism because U.S. withdrawal would be a sign of clear failure. They'd be leasing, leaving as losers. And imperialism doesn't like to look like a loser. The issue of safe havens, though, is just, just to take them by turn, just clearly a canard. First off, the Taliban and ISIS hate each other. And in fact, as the New York Times revealed last year, American airplanes and drones provide air cover for Taliban fighters. Yes, that's correct. It's a New York Times article from last year. When the Taliban is fighting ISIS, the U.S. uses their planes and drones to provide air cover for the Taliban. So obviously, Taliban, ISIS, not going on there. As for al-Qaeda, it seems hard to believe that they would just do the one thing likely to court a reoccupation of the country, which has let Al-Qaeda or anyone else uh, organize some sort of terrorist attack on Europe or America. But, you know, there's an underlying reality here that once the U.S. and these other NATO forces leave, it won't be that easy for them to come back in because, of course, the wars are very, very unpopular here. The occupation, very, very unpopular here. 60%, by the way, of people who voted for or were going to vote for Joe Biden. So they said in September of last year, uh, said in a poll, 60% that they wanted the war to end by May. So nevertheless, you can see here that in a situation like that, Whatever they say, it just, what is you know? It's, it's ultimately just a moot point. Well, yeah, of course, we won't let them do that. But once they're gone, it's hard to get back in. They could do it anyway. So obviously, it's a relatively hollow promise. The U.S. definitely knows that. What's really going on here? Ultimately, this is just a pressure point to push the Taliban to be more inclusive of the U.S.-backed government, so-called government that was brought to power in multiple elections, widely considered by just about everyone to be totally fraudulent and who arguably may not be able to really gain support outside of a few small specific areas of the country without the U.S. and the West backing them. But clearly, what the U.S. is signaling here and NATO is signaling here is the easiest way to assure them that you won't do the things that they claim they don't want you to do is to promise to keep more of their friends around. And as for the issue of the violence uh, and what's going on here, this is just U.S.-NATO PR. Again, once the U.S. is gone, the struggle between the Taliban and the forces around the so-called current government will take its own course. So, yes, they could stop attacking them now. They could just stop doing whatever they want to do. Uh, but ultimately, as soon the day after the U.S. withdraws, they could just attack them. And, you know, it would probably be even harder uh, for them to maintain at that point. And it would be even more potentially destructive to those forces. So at the end of the day, also a relatively hollow promise there. So what the U.S. is really obviously looking for, clearly, is they want to tamp down the so-called violence so that they can say that they're leaving due to this diplomatic victory. They'll have a government that they'll say is a national unity government. They'll say violence is down. They've ended the war. They've dealt with the former scourge of the Taliban, that they've curbed them and tamed them. And it's a big, great victory for the U.S.-led NATO imperialist alliance. Yes, it took a long time, but really it shows that colonialism is a civilizing influence. That's what they want to leave as, but they are obviously, that's fake. And so ultimately the Taliban is fully aware of that. They are clearly wagering that given the widespread dislike of the war, again, remember those 60% of Biden voters there, um, that And by showing that they are indeed the dominant force on the ground, just reinforces the whole thing about how futile the entire conflict is, how the U.S. will never win, and that that could force Biden to just get out ultimately for the political reasons. And even though he would be leaving with the tail between his legs, they would leave anyway. So they're essentially wagering, well, ultimately, they're not going to be able to stay forever. So why would we you know, do anything to give the perception other than the war is totally futile? So they're banking on the that fact in and of itself. So what it all really means is 
the occupation will grind on. Who knows how long exactly? Clearly, the U.S. security establishment is hesitant to leave Afghanistan ever and are throwing up all sorts of roadblocks to a potential deal and setting up to scrap the one in place. But that being said, this occupation of Afghanistan is intensely unpopular. Almost no one, even the people who support it in politics, even says that they support it. So there's a lot of cross pressures here. And certainly what you do, whether you, uh, if you don't support this war, will play some role in what takes place there. Anyway, what we have to see for now, despite the fact that many, many, many people, 60% of Biden voters thought this war should end, he is set to continue it. Well, those were the sounds of protest in France and Paris, specifically on Saturday. They were part of a wave of demonstrations that swept the country in opposition to a new security law, although some who came out also tied in with this opposition to France's uh, recent lockdown measures as well. We'll talk a little bit about that too. But organizers in general are saying that around half a million people came out in dozens of cities, but they did note that the turnout was down due to COVID-19 restrictions, bad weather, and the fact that protests were being held more frequently since the last and larger national protests in November so that people felt, you know, less compelled to come out given these other factors. The centerpiece of the protest is a new security law that, while amended from an earlier very unpopular version that came out last year, it still creates major new penalties for filming police officers. The bill allows the government to imprison someone for up to a year or fine them up to 45,000 euros a person. Put them in prison for up to a year or fine them 45,000 euros a person. If they disseminate quote-unquote any photos which can identify individual police officers by face or otherwise. What exactly that disseminate could even mean? Uh, not 100% clear. So obviously, this is basically a bill that will ban people from filming police actions. Now, this is something that happens all the time in France because there's quite a bit of police brutality and it's been behind driving a lot of mass outrage over killings and beatings by the police of innocent people, including a black music producer who was beaten by white cops last year, was caught on camera right around the time there were the last big protest which showed, you know, how potentially problematic this law could be. And so many people are obviously making a clear connection here between the law and a desire to allow unfettered police brutality. And it's coming at the same time that a range of organizations, uh, including French organizations, including international groups like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, are now starting legal proceedings that at least could lead to a large class action lawsuit alleging extensive racism in French policing. It's very rare there are any major legal actions against the police in France, so it's making a much larger waves there than something like a class action lawsuit might sound over here um, in the United States, that is. Other issues also crept into the protest, though. Many said that they also joined, in addition to being opposed to the police bill, to support cultural expression. France is under a fairly strict lockdown right now including a 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew every night. And this has led some uh, to some youth raves that have been going on outdoors, you know, under bridges and the like being shut down. Now, <laughs> you know, look, it certainly seems relatively ill-advised to be out at a rave right now, but be that as it may, many of the young people joining the protests were telling reporters that 
they felt there was a double standard at play, that all sorts of businesses were going uh, on, were allowed to open, and the authorities were essentially allowing these businesses to be unsafe and to violate COVID protocols, or at least, you know, what would make the most sense in order to keep making profits, but are cracking down on youth cultural expressions that they view as essentially no more dangerous. So valuing profit over people in the context of how COVID-19 is playing out. And it's part of a broader opposition that's been ginned up around the issue of this police bill of a feeling amongst many people in the country, and this certainly is reality, I would say, that under Macron, France has become more repressive, that there have been more extensive police crackdowns on, on protest, as well as in certain communities. And so it's all sort of coming in together here. Now, the government seems set to push the law through in March, but you know they said they've been open to amending certain things, and Macron has been forced to U-turn on several of his major initiatives so far in his presidency due to large protests and large strikes. So it seems that the outcome here almost certainly lies in the evolution of this ongoing protest movement. And yesterday, as you may have seen, the military in Myanmar rounded up civilian leaders, including the country's leader and longtime political prisoner, Aung San Suu Kyi. The military also rounded up other key civilian members of the ruling party, the National League for Democracy, headed by Ms. Suu Kyi. The military is claiming that there was fraud in the election that took place last November, where... Not surprisingly, the party that the military was backing did not do so well. They gained 33 seats to the National League for Democracy's 396, according to the Wall Street Journal. The armed forces have declared a one-year state of emergency and claim new elections will be held after the one-year state of emergency. Now, to really understand what's going on here, we have to understand that this coup is, to a degree, pro forma. The military kind of showing a, a hidden hand that they'd never fully pulled back. From 1962 to 2011, there was military rule in Burma. It was, for a large part of that time, known as Burma. The country was, to well, to tell the story fast here, more or less out of sync with the type of economic system the West would have liked to have seen, not as neo-colonial as a former British colony should be, you might say. Over time, the country became heavily isolated by Western sanctions, which were you know designed to isolate them, and which, of course, played a key role in keeping the country deeply impoverished. There was, however, a significant opposition movement, or really should be said various opposition currents, and uh, Ms. Suu Kyi became really the most prominent face. She was widely hailed all across the world as almost a Mandela-like figure for Myanmar. So in the late stages of military rule here, and remember it ended in 2011, uh, they... The military, which had been very isolated, they, they control the economy, they control the country, they've been very isolated by sanctions, but the rise of China started to change things. It's a very rich country, Myanmar, and various minerals. They were able to do a lot of trade with China, which started to change some minds in the West. They recognized that they probably couldn't crush the existing government, and that because of what they were doing, their isolation, Myanmar's resources were shifting 100% towards China, which of course for the United States and the West is the worst possible thing. Anything good for China is more or less bad for the United States in that kind of geopolitical sense, at least, in terms of countries and who they are uh, most aligned with. Be that as it may, the generals clearly understood that. They moved towards a managed democratic transition, and just about everyone knew what was going on. It took a few years, but that it would end up with Ms. Suu Kyi leading the country. That is indeed what happened. And her party, in fact, has grown in popularity since uh, the democratic transition. And the West, of course, 
went right ahead and reopened relations, walked right in that very lucrative door, which certainly was good for the military clique that runs the country and the economy because now they can leverage the U.S. against China uh, for the most profit to shovel into their own pockets. Now, all that being said, they were never fully pulled back anyway. The system they created, the so-called democratic transition, marginally democratic, you could say. The military has allocated huge blocks in the parliament, just people they appoint. They don't have to be elected. And it was relatively clear, I think, to anyone who's watched this issue closely, that Ms. Suki and the NLD were ruling more or less at the sufferance of the military there. And clearly now, the generals are calculating that with the U.S.-China rivalry heating up, that the U.S. and the EU won't dare crack down because they fear that that they'll lose whatever leverage they have against China that they've gained from reopening relations with Myanmar. That's the reason they did it in the first place. There are calls for renewed sanctions from some in Congress, uh, Robert Menendez in the Senate, a Democrat, but so far the coup has been met with pretty muted responses in, well, not just Western capitals, really all around the world, suggesting that the generals have wagered correctly. This is a rapidly developing situation, so there's a lot more to be said here, but, you know, really if nothing else, maybe at this stage what we can take away from from this and something just this incident in and of itself and even just the past few decades of relationships between Myanmar and the United States is how the the impact of the U.S. decisions on average everyday people. I mean, the U.S. hates the country. They sanction the country to death. Uh, that's obviously worse for average people, not ruling people in a country like Myanmar or anywhere. Then they reopen the country and open it up to even more exploitation from Western companies and Western countries. And you have all these decisions that are made that are deeply affecting people's lives that have nothing to do with the people of Myanmar. They have no say in it whatsoever. But because the U.S. wants to dominate the globe, they're making these decisions to isolate or to open up, to flood a country with capital or to take it out that are affecting people's true livelihoods, their ability to thrive and survive, even though they have zero say. It's just a powerful statement, I think, about the role imperialism plays in the world, not just to directly, but also indirectly. But we'll keep covering this as it continues to move on. Uh, obviously, an important issue there in Southeast Asia. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom.